goodness gracious, you guys, you guys are, are what makes this whole thing possible. It's, you're the church, right? It's not an organization and it's not a couple of people with titles. It's you. You are Generations Church and it is such an honor to just serve alongside you. We're doing this thing for Jesus. And uh, I love you guys so much. Thank y'all. As we talked about last week, uh, this is a, an age. It seems like this is an age of anxiety, isn't it? Right? It's just, it's in the air. I mean, you can't turn on the, the TV or the uh, watch media uh, without just being bombarded with uh, all of these uh, reasons for anxiety. And if you weren't scared before, they'll tell you why you should be. <laughs> Right? Anyway, so I think the, the Holy Spirit really wants to do something for us over, over these, these few weeks. It's a, it's a short little series that we're doing here. And uh, we started last week talking about making time for stillness before the Lord to allow him to restore our souls. Um, if, if you weren't here and that sounds like something, you know, you could use, I encourage you to go back and, and check that podcast out from last week. But today we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel 23. I want to look at another interesting passage from the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 2 Samuel 23. Uh, this is a episode, a little scene with David. It says, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Agilom. Now, <clears throat> little context here real quick. Chapter 23 is essentially a flashback. It's really interesting. If you like read the couple chapters before this, uh, a few verses before this, we are given the very last dying words of the elderly King David. He's, he's lived his life and the, the end of his life is kind of tumultuous. It's, it, it gets a little crazy, but he is on his, we would call it his deathbed. And he is give, he gives his, you know, his last words, a blessing to everyone. And then what the writer does here is really interesting, kind of dissolves into this flashback of a moment that happened years earlier in his life when he was a young warrior before he was even king. So if this was the movie, this is what you could picture, like, you know, the old elderly man in his bed and he says his last words and then the camera kind of like zooms in as his eyes glaze over and he goes back to a memory from his youth. And that's what we get. It's very interesting. So it says the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Agilom while a band of Philistines, that's the army of their sworn enemy, was encamped in the valley of Repham. Okay. Now, What's interesting here, an earlier flashback to this flashback shows you who was in the cave with him. In 1 Samuel 22, it says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Agilom. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. That sounds like a fun bunch. Ugh, right? Everybody with issues comes to be in his cave with him. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Okay, so you got to picture this. David is surrounded in the cave of Agilom uh, by lots of people with issues, anxiety, anger, and to make it even more fun, his relatives show up. Uh, so that's the picture that we're given for David here. Now, number two, uh, earlier passage from this tells us that Saul, who was the king of Israel at the time, the most powerful man in the land, has commanded all of his generals to kill David, to hunt him down and kill him, because he's basically he's jealous of David. David's kind of become this sort of war hero. So he's jealous. 
So we've got this whole flashback here at the end of King David's life to this memory of before he was king. He's holed up in this cave. And then it says this, verse 14. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Okay, so try to picture this. There's an Israeli town that's been invaded by their sworn enemy. That might have happened three weeks ago. It also happened 3,000 years ago, right? This is literally something that has been happening for 3,000 years. In other words, now side note here, David grew up in Bethlehem. He's from Bethlehem. So not only is David being hunted by his own king, whom he has tried to serve, and he's been like this war hero for the country. He's been hunted now by this king, the most powerful man in the land. Not only is he surrounded by everybody with issues, right, including his relatives, but we find out his hometown has been conquered by the mortal enemy just down the valley from where he's hiding in this cave. I want to show you a picture. This is one of the actual caves of Agilum. Uh, it's there today. There's several caves, but this is one of the main ones, and they believe this is probably the main one that David uh, chose as one of his hideouts. That looks like a good time, doesn't it? If you look at that and you picture a vicious man-eating rabbit coming out of it, then we are kindred spirits. If you don't understand, it's okay. Um, Historians tell us that this cave was actually very close to the border of where the Philistines lived, the Philistine land, and so it made a good place for David to hide out from Saul and his army, right? Because Saul and his army didn't want to incur into Philistine land, so David would hide out here. And so here he is in this cave, surrounded, hunted, fearing for his life. He's got a lot of needy people around him, and they make him their commander. Now, David's a young guy. He's, he's, I don't know, he's probably like 18 19 maybe. Uh, he's this young guy. So it's, it's not just like dudes in a cave. It's dudes in a cave who are all saying, lead us, fix us, show us the way. And he's expected to lead and make sense out of all of this confusion going on. He's thrust into this position while sitting in the cave. By the way, it's interesting about three, I know of three of some of David's most moving Psalms are specifically says that they are written from this cave, the cave of Agilom, that's Psalm 34, 57, and 142, if you're taking notes. Then it mentions this interesting little detail. David's sitting in this cave. He's surrounded by all this. He sees his hometown invaded. And it says that David longed for water. And he said, oh, that somebody would give, get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So he's in the cave. The Philistines have conquered Bethlehem down the valley. He can probably see it. Several, several years earlier, you just picture David's this young guy, several, just several years earlier, he's a shepherd, a shepherd in Bethlehem. His life is essentially taking care of a group of sheep, writing some poetry. I mean, that's life right there, right? I mean, that's what he does. And, you know, he'd probably go down to the well to get the water for the sheep and some water for himself. That was the extent of his responsibilities. Just flash forward a couple of years later, he's this war hero freedom fighter. The king wants to kill and people are looking to him for guidance. And so he says, ah, oh, what I wouldn't give for some of that water from Bethlehem 
right about now. Now, when he says that, is he being literal? Or is this some kind of longing at a far deeper level? Right? Oh, back when I was a kid, that water from that well on a hot summer day in Bethlehem, there was nothing like it. And how did life get so complicated, so confusing? Ah, just to be a shepherd right now, taking care of some sheep, getting that minerally taste and water out of that well. Oh, I could go for that right now. How did I get from there to here, right? Ah, remember when we were first married? Yeah, remember we didn't have any kids and we didn't have any money, so like the apartment was really easy to take care of, right? You didn't have to worry about taxes because we didn't make anything. <laughs> remember that? Man. Remember when, when the office was just, you know, it was just a few of us working at the job, you know, and it was like us against the world and we were getting it done. We knew everybody. Remember when we could go out on a weekend without nine babysitters and a well-organized military operation of like, here's the diaper wipes, here's the nuggets, here's this, call us on this number if you need. Remember when that, remember when life wasn't so complicated? How many of you know exactly probably what David may be thinking sitting in this cave dreaming about water from Bethlehem? He's got all these people saying, tell us what we need to do, tell us what to do. And he's like, I could, I could, I'd give anything to go back to those old days when things were simple. I'd give anything to taste that spring water from Bethlehem. So, three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Some people are a bit fuzzy on the difference between literal and figurative. Right? Am I right? David's dreaming out loud, oh, I could go for some water. And these guys are like, you got a cap and we're going to go get it. That's our job. You want water, we're there. They hightail it from Agilum to Bethlehem, which is a 12-mile hike, by the way, through occupied wilderness. They break through the enemy lines. They get to the well. They get the water. Somehow they carry it back without spilling it. I don't know how they do that. They get back to the cave. They make it back to the, with the water. But David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. It's not the blood of men. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. David would not drink it. And that's the story. Okay, okie dokie, right? I'm just picturing at this point the guy, he hands it to him with a big smile on his face, and then he does, he pours it out. He's like, I, I don't think I'm getting that promotion that I thought I was going to get. Huh, okay. This is like the scene from Last Jedi, you know, when she hands Luke the, the lightsaber and he just flings it over his shoulder. You're like, yes, what? David sees what these guys have done, and he says, Lord, far be it for me to drink that. That's... That's the blood of the men who risked their lives. No way am I worthy to enjoy drinking that cup of water. How could I? Now, this pouring out the water, this is kind of coded language. So it, it has religious significance. 
And the guy standing around would have understood this. This, this wasn't just like he poured it out because he was like, I wanted sweet tea, right? Um, no, this meant something very important to them. In the ancient world, there was a, a drink offering in the Bible. They had this thing called a drink offering. It was called a libation. And, and so here's one from scripture. In Genesis 35, it says, Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. Over in Numbers, it says, pour out the drink offering to the Lord at the sanctuary. There's a lot of other places where it says kind of a similar thing. Folks in the scriptures, they had this awareness that when you were blessed with something, that all that you have been given is a gift everything you have is a gift. And so if you own a vineyard and that vineyard produces grapes and that grapes produces wine, what you do with that first bit of wine was you would pour it on an altar to God as a way to say to him, I understand that this is a gift. This is a gift of what I have. And, and I, I would never want it to, you know, said that I, I took this for granted, that I have some entitlement to this or something like that, that I understand that this precious gift, that this crop or this new life, that this harvest, whatever it is, I understand this is a gift. And so I'm going to take this first bit of it and offer it back as a gift to acknowledge that it's all a gift and acknowledge my gratefulness. And this is not a lost art, actually, right? As, as Ms. Rocio uh, pointed out, a lot of us today, we take an example, we take a first bit of our paycheck and, and we give it back to God as a way of saying, I acknowledge that everything is a gift. And so I give back the first bit as a way of helping me keep in mind that it's all a gift. Are you with me? It, it's like our declaration of God that we, we know I commit to keeping my heart attuned to gratitude because our heart is like a muscle and it's got to be exercised, right? And so I, I, it's got to be worked. And if I don't practice gratitude specifically in something that costs me, that I will, I know that I know me and I will develop a sense of entitlement in which it, that'll take my heart in all kinds of destructive places. And so when David pours this out, the other 400 guys standing there would have realized, whoa, David, he's performing a religious act. This is, this is significant. What, look what he's doing. He's turned what these men did, getting the water. He has turned it into an act of worship. These guys are just doing their job, right? You know, Captain wants water. We're going to get water. I don't know why they're from Australia, but they are. <laughs> David has taken their duty and, you know, the, the extravagant risk of, you know, they're, they're, the potential cost of their lives to go do this, their willingness to sacrifice their blood. And he's turned it into something sacred and holy. He, he hasn't dissed it. He has elevated what they have given. The great theologian, Walter Brueggemann, he says that a, this about this very scene. He says, David understands intuitively that such a costly commodity is appropriately used only for a sacramental act. So when David takes the, the fruit of their efforts and he surrenders it to the Lord, he transforms that sacrifice into something greater. And this is what I really want us to get. We could simplify it like this. Surrendering the sacrifice makes it sacred. Surrendering the sacrifice makes it sacred. David says, you guys gave that much that is a sacred thing. 
And why, is, why does David do this? Because David fundamentally sees the world sacramentally. He sees the world in a sacramental way. And what that means is to, it's to see the world as a place where God is present and he's active all around us. It's to see the world as, as a place where even ordinary things like water and bread and, and the people that we encounter, the person you're sitting beside, and the blood, sweat, and tears that, that people shed, all those things reflect a, a deeper divine reality than just what meets the eye. It's to see the world sacramentally. Living with a, a sacramental worldview, it means viewing all of life, all of life, both the good and the bad, as holy and infused with the very presence of God's Spirit. So, these men who brought him the water, I'm sure they were, you know, brought it to him, expecting him to have a really nice drink. They just wanted to do that for him. Do they, in this moment, feel that their efforts have been wasted? Well, if they think like a, a lot of us would, if they viewed life from the same perspective as, as we view things, they may have. Um, if they have what we might call an outcomes-driven view of the world, outcomes-driven, they might be standing there looking at David going, why, you ungrateful, I risk my life getting that for you, and you pour it on the, right? But I'm guessing that's not what happened. Because in that moment, what they and the other 400 men Watching this play out, what they would have seen is that David is what he's really doing, and that is turning what might have just been a nice drink of water into something profoundly sacred and holy and priceless. Now, let's bring it to, our, to us. If we begin to see the world sacramentally, there's all kinds of little categories and belief systems that are going to quickly find themselves obsolete. Let's think about some of these things. Things that get redefined, like results, outcomes, guarantees, control, success, fruit, judgment. These things that are so important to us Let's see some of these. Come out there, fruit. Yeah. For many of us, what we do, we do because of the results that we're going to get, right? That's just pretty obvious. Um, whether we're talking about an investment we make or we talk about raising our kids, we talk about the prayers that we pray to God. And then we evaluate what we do uh, based on whether or not the results are what we intended, right? That sounds pretty normal. That works great, uh, except when things don't go the way it was supposed to go. And then we're left with, what do we do with that? Right? And then what often happens is we, we, then we judge ourselves and we condemn ourselves based on the lack of the fruit of our efforts. I put all this into this. You know, maybe perhaps you were in a relationship and you gave everything you had to that relationship. And then the relationship fell apart. 
And so now you have within you this thing in the past and, and it was costly and it took a piece out of you and you carry that thing around and, and you, you just have this sense of why the waste? I gave three, four, nine, 20 years, whatever, to that, to that person, to that cause, to that business, to that ministry, and then it all fell apart. But to think sacramentally is to understand that those years, that cost, that sacrifice, you gave yourself to that. And when we surrender it to God, when we acknowledge the cost of it, instead of fixating on what was lost and what was wasted, we offer it to God as a holy sacrifice. And it becomes a sacred, beautiful thing that cannot be tainted. God, I brought my whole self to that person. I gave them everything. And so I take all those years, I take that effort, I take all that investment, all that money, all that work, that thing that went belly up, and, and I offer it as a sacred thing. Here, Lord, take it. Take the results, the outcomes, the guarantees. I surrender it all to you. And surrendering that sacrifice makes it sacred. Parents, you raise this kid to have a certain way of looking at the world, to make certain choices in the world, to navigate the complexities of life in a particular way, to value the things that you value and to avoid those habits and to believe these things that are so important to you. And then that kid begins to make decisions that aren't what the parent programmed them to do, right? And as a parent, you begin to panic. What about all we did? What about, all, we, did, we did the thing, we did the thing, we did that, and we did the thing. Wait, wait, wait. Now, let's be honest. Were you loving that kid because you believed you could control them? Because the control is an illusion. Amen? Are you with me? You give your absolute best to raising that child, and that is a noble sacrifice. And so what we do is we offer that up, and we surrender the outcomes to God and let that be what it is. And for many of us, we have been seduced, I think, into thinking that we have guarantees, but that kid is going to do what that kid's going to do. Am I right? Amen. That's right. We don't get guarantees. And so we take the cost and we take the sacrifice and we offer it up. We say, God, take this. And we pour it on the ground, not as some kind of something wasted. We pour it on the ground as something holy. Because your father in, father in heaven says, hand it over. Hand that thing over. What you did was a beautiful thing. Your sacrifice, the cost, all that seems like futility to the naked eye, in that moment it is made sacred. A little confession I'll make here on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. I never planned on being a pastor. I grew up in the home of a pastor. Convinced and still am the greatest pastor who's ever lived. The man born to do this. 
And, and I watched this man, uh, my dad, I just watched him, you know, be such a man of integrity. The same guy in public as he was in private. A man with such a tender heart, so forgiving, so patient, just so loving with people. All the things that I wasn't. And, and I thought, my goodness, that's something I could, I could never do that. And, and for years, I wandered away from God, and then I came back to the Lord, and when I committed my life to Him, I told the Lord, God, I won't do anything for you. I mean, obviously, except for pastoring. <laughs> I mean, for obvious reasons. Um, and so God uh, made me a pastor, because He's hilarious. <laughs> And, uh, but, but it wasn't all at once. It was a, you know, it was a slow, it was a mentoring thing. It was a, it was a, it was a gradual process. And as he mentored me slowly and gently, um, he did what I, I know today, you couldn't convince me otherwise, it was a miracle because it's not me. And that is he gave me a pastor's heart. That's something that just, I, I, it wasn't in my DNA, wasn't born with, but he gave me a pastor's heart. He gave me a love for people a love, a true concern, and a passion for people, and a longing to inspire people and point them to Jesus and point them to the kingdom way and just how good Jesus can be. And, and, and that's beautiful. But something else, I'll say this, seeped into my, my bones and my bloodstream in those early years. Somewhere along the way was planted this idea that my job is to take you and, and get you from this place to this place. That, so, you know, so you're here and really there's this ideal place over here and that's where I need to get you. And my job is somehow to figure out how to get you there. Now I've made this place up in my head, by the way. <laughs> uh, but if I could just get everybody to see it the way I see it, to become aware, to become enlightened and see this thing, then, you know, whatever the word is, right? Uh, if I could just get them there, then, ah, oh, that'll be beautiful. If I could just figure out how to make people do this. I can remember literally having language like, if once we arrive, whew, that's dangerous language there. Once generations, right? If we could just get it from here to, you know, we're here now, but if we could just get it to here, if we just get it to here, then, ah, oh, then, I mean, I'll just be able to sit back and relax because we'll, we'll be super church. We'll, probably, we'll just change the name out front to super church because it'll be. And what had to happen for me over the years is God had to beat that out of me, my desire for control. Because we do that. We do that. We, we engage with this particular person and we have in our head where this person's supposed to be. And it can, and it, you know, you probably do this too. There's somebody in your life, you're trying to like help them and it's out of love, right? I mean, you love them. And if you just, if you could just control them, if you just do everything I said. And, you know, we have this idea where they're supposed to be. We make up this criteria and then we evaluate them on whether or not they, they have reached this place that we have deigned for them. And what God had to do is just beat that out of me and say, no, preacher boy, you don't get guarantees. You don't get to choose outcomes. You don't get to pick and choose who is here on Sunday morning or who listens to you or who does what you tell them to do if you're counseling them. You don't get to pick that. You know, who, who runs with the challenge or who agrees with your take on the passage? People are going to do what they're going to do. All you do is you take what I have given you, what I have put in your hands and in your heart, and you offer it like a gift. 
a gift freely given. That is all you do. And you give yourself 100% to that. You throw everything you have into it. And then because it is a gift freely given, you simply celebrate the act that that gift was. And then you trust me with the rest. Because preacher boy, you don't get to manipulate and control how it will be received or understood. And that is a painful process. And over time, it had to be beaten out of me. Control is an illusion. Guarantees are a deception. And, and so we celebrate. We come here and we're going to celebrate each week because surrendering our sacrifice makes it sacred. Surrendering our sacrifice. You surrender the sacrifice that you made. And I encourage you, if you're here today, and this is, this is ringing really close for you, don't hold it back. Don't hold it back from God like a ransom. Like, God, okay, if you do this, then I'll do this. Don't hold it back. Don't offer it like a bribe with strings attached to it. You simply surrender it as out of your hands, and you put it in the hands of the one who can make it sacred. And let's look at the flip side of this, by the way, too. Because the, the idea, calling it, a sacrifice. Just calling it a sacrifice doesn't mean it's sacred, okay? The Bible is full of examples of sacrifices gone horribly wrong. Did you know that? It's amazing, right? Right? I mean, we get, we, we barely get into the human race and all of a sudden we've got two brothers, Cain and Abel, making a sacrifice. And one of them is rejected because it's out of the wrong heart. We, we see a King Saul. He famously uh, as this passage where he makes this sacrifice and he loses his kingdom over the way he did the sacrifice because it wasn't from a surrendered heart. It wasn't from a surrendered heart. The famous, uh, the prophet tells him famously, it, to obey is better than to sacrifice, right? Jesus comes along and he tells the parable about two people at the temple praying this one, this humble sinner who's praying. And then there's this Pharisee who's boasting about his amazing sacrifice, right? And that is a sacrifice that didn't come from a surrendered heart. And ultimately, these are sacrifices that have no, they were done in vain. They have no eternal value. Often we make a sacrifice. We sacrifice a bit of our time, our money, or our comfort for a good cause. But it's got strings attached, right? The expectation, some ROI is going to come from our investment, whether it's a, a business or our kid. And surrender means giving up control and our expectations and giving up our rights to God. So when disappointment strikes, when you make that, that sacrifice, disappointment strikes and, and we're grieving the, the wasted effort, you and I have a choice. We can hold on to that cup of bitterness. We can let it eat at you until you die, or you can surrender it all to God. You pour it out as an act of worship, and you let him turn what may seem like wasted time, you make him turn it into something sacred. Sometimes I think we can't get past the worldview that the universe owes me, right? Look what I did. The universe owes us because sacrifice without surrender comes with expectations. But when you surrender that, oh, that, when you surrender what you gave to that person, 
You loved that person. Anybody here who's ever taken care of a, of a sick loved one for a long time, you know what I'm talking about, to make that sacrifice for somebody. And for that person who, you take care of that person, and maybe they're disabled in some way, and you take care of that person, and it's not for any, like, expectation, like, because someday they're going to, like, be able to get a job and pay me back. No, you, you know this may be for the rest of their lives. In fact, you would probably use a different word than sacrifice. You'd probably use another four-letter word, love, Right? Love, when you just give, you just give. Why? Because that's who Jesus is and you're trying to be like Jesus. We want to be more like Jesus. In Philippians, Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing. Jesus, God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So following in the footsteps of Jesus, and that's what we're after, that's what we want to do. It means that we don't stand in the temple uh, like the Pharisee yelling, God, look at my great sacrifice, now pay up. Because Jesus surrendered his glory, his power, his rights to the Father. He surrendered his life and his will and his purpose to God. And in doing so, his sacrifice made you and me sacred. He made us sacred. So I just want to encourage you, you guys here today who are weary, whose soul has been wounded in some way and your hearts are broken, I want you to hear me. Surrender, it, what surrender does is it turns all those years of futility into treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. Surrender turns a cup of water into a sacred libation. It turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. It turns the mundane into something meaningful. Surrendering the sacrifice that you made redeems what is lost. I want to show one more example of this from the New Testament in Matthew 26. One of my favorite stories, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why the waste, they asked. When you find yourself asking about that divorce, God, why the waste? About that business startup that didn't last, why the waste? You can, you can rage at the disappointment of it all and the outcomes that didn't pan out. And yes, by the way, there is a season for mourning. It's, it's healthy to, to grieve and to mourn what was lost, what was taken from you. But then there is a dawn that breaks. When you choose to lift up your eyes and surrender it as an offering poured out and let God turn it into something sacred. Jesus later, about 
her pouring this out, Jesus says simply, what she did, pouring out this perfume, was beautiful. Beautiful. You know, there would be people who followed Jesus around during his ministry. And some of them, were told, even waved palm branches on the Passover before his death. As he rode into the city, they were so excited. Five days later, they stood looking up at a cross, at this crucified, lifeless body, this man who had held such promise, who had proclaimed the kingdom of God is here. And they said, why this waste? What they didn't realize, of course, is what looks like waste was an act of sacred surrender, which just happened to win the salvation for the whole world. Do you have this weight you're carrying around that makes your heart heavy, this burden you're trying to make sense of? And maybe you're just stuck in that loop, you know, those categories of of guarantees and control and outcome. I did everything right. I did everything right. So the universe owes me, right? And I want to lovingly encourage you, invite you today to take that cup, all those years, all that investment, all that time and all that love you poured into it. You take that effort and you pour it out before the Lord. And you say this, I release control over it all. I surrender this as a sacred act of worship. And I've got good news for us, my friends. The good news is this. In the kingdom of God, nothing is wasted. No act of love is overlooked. No sacrifice is meaningless. The faithfulness that you showed for all those years is not lost on him. It never expires from the memory of heaven because God redeems what is stolen. He accounts for what was spent every last cent and and what was lost, what was unfruitful, what was offered and rejected back in your face. God redeems the cost. And in his hands, what seems wasted is made sacred. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, dear God, we bring before you our need for control, (laughs) our need for justice and for those certain outcomes. We we just lay them down at your feet, Lord. We bring before you all those relationships, that work that we invested in, the dreams that we launched but didn't, they didn't last, the great ideas that didn't pan out, the years. We now find ourselves wondering, what was the point? God, why this waste? And we enter into, Lord, a sacramental understanding of things. An understanding that you are present and powerful, even in our failures. We surrender to you, Lord, the cost and the sacrifice as a sacred act of worship. We surrender control of that, Lord God, which we never had control of to begin with. God, help us to just trust you enough to bring our pain and our unresolved confusion, Lord God, and and yes, our sins 
to bring it all to the cross. We ask you to meet us there, Lord God, and show us that you have been there all along. You've been right there with us. Your mercy, your love, your hope, your ability to bring life from the ashes. Thank you, Father. Thank you for ministering to our souls today in the strong, powerful, redeeming name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. 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 Would you stand to your feet with me as our prayer partners are coming forward today? If today you have a need and you need someone to pray with you, these guys love to pray. They would love to pray with you. They love you. And we believe uh, that when we stand together in faith, that something amazing happens, that God moves. And so I encourage you to come forward with any needs that you have going on in your life. If there's something you just feel like, I, I need to surrender this over to God. I've been holding this thing in and it is like a poison cup. I'm ready to pour it out. These guys can walk with you through that step. Just let them, let them pray with you. And if you want to say yes to Jesus for the very first time, ah, what a great day to do that. We would love for you to come forward and pray with them. They would love to, to walk, walk with you in that. Today, uh, after the service, we're going to be celebrating some water baptisms going on today. And so we invite you, if you want to come and celebrate with us, it's going to be happening right over here next to the baptismal. And uh, so you can come and celebrate with them and their families and their friends today. I'm excited about that. So my friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be merciful to you. May he lift his countenance and grant you the grace and the peace that we all need today. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.